So I want to tell you that we're coming to the Twin Cities for a live event on Wednesday, July 17th. I'll be talking with Dan and Angie Bastian, co-founders of Angie's Boom Chicka Pop, how a history teacher and a psychiatric nurse started making popcorn and eventually got it into stores from coast to coast. The show is supported by American Express. And to get tickets, go to nprpresents.org. I hope to see you there. And one more quick thing before we start the show. The How I Built This Summit, sponsored by American Express, is coming back this fall to San Francisco. It's happening on October 22nd and 23rd, and this year it's going to be amazing. You will have the opportunity to spend the day with some of the most inspiring entrepreneurs in the world, and many of them will be hanging around to chat and give advice, literally. People like David Neeleman of JetBlue, Stuart Butterfield of Slack, Sarah Blakely of Spanx, Kevin Systrom of Instagram, Marcia Kilgore of Bliss, Jen Rubio of Away, Tim and Joey from Allbirds. This conference is unlike any other you've ever attended. It's designed to build and nurture a community of builders. Come join us in San Francisco October 22nd and 23rd, and hopefully I'll see you there. To find out more about the summit, go to summit.npr.org. It just hit me that, wow, I, I'm either something really good or I'm something really bad, and I'm really bad. I'm a big problem. And look what I've done. I've let down all these people, all these employees, all these investors, all these people who believed in me. And I just couldn't live with that. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Dave Dahl, after years of prison and drug use, turned his life around by baking loaves of healthy whole wheat bread, Dave's killer bread. So if there's one clear lesson we've learned from making this show, it's this. The story matters. It's the why you do what you do. But more importantly, it's the thing that allows your customers to deepen their connection to your product or brand. But companies and businesses don't always put their stories on the label. Think about Roxanne Quimby selling beeswax candles and lip balm at farmers markets in Maine while trying to scale up Burt's Bees. Or how Steve Ells wandered past a burrito shop in San Francisco's Mission District in the late 1980s and came up with Chipotle. Now, it's highly unlikely that you buy Burt's Bees products or a Chipotle burrito because of these stories. If you're a fan of either company, you probably just like what they make. But in the case of Dave's Killer Bread, the story was crucial to its early success. And it was printed on the wrapper of every loaf. And his story has more struggle than probably any story we've featured on this show so far. In his 20s, Dave Dahl was a pretty messed up guy. A misfit, a loser, those are actually his own words. And he spent a lot of time in prison. At times, Dave thought he might even die behind bars. But eventually, he transformed his thinking. And when he was released from prison, he went home to his family bakery. And he started making bread, really good bread. And people loved it. And the family bakery grew pretty quickly. Seven years on, they were selling Dave's Killer Bread across the Northwest, doing over $50 million in sales. But 
we'll get there. Dave was born in Portland, Oregon in 1963, where his family ran a small bakery. His mom and dad were Seventh-day Adventists. It's a denomination known to practice a really healthy diet. No alcohol, no caffeine, and lots of grains. And Dave's family? They were very conservative. My mom was very religious. My dad was a believer. They were very strict. And we were expected to be honest. We were taught to be truthful. Um, We were taught not to fight. You know, everything was about getting ready for the afterlife, for heaven. What did your parents do for for a living? What was their their business? Well, they were bakers. And my dad uh, was a hardworking man. He did lots of different jobs, odd jobs, until he was able to muster up enough money to buy a bakery that was failing. And that's where he started back in the 50s. And so they did a lot of birthday cakes and donuts even and all that stuff. But at some point, my dad decided that he wanted to do more more whole grains and uh, no animal fats. Huh. That was, it was revolutionary at the time. Yeah. Um, but that was definitely the Seventh-day Adventist influence. So because of, of their religious sort of views, he, he's thinking, I'm going to start making, you know, healthier whole grain breads, which must have been kind of a a hippy-dippy thing in the, in the you know, late 60s, early 70s, right? Yeah, that's a funny thing, because my dad was the opposite of a hippie. He did, he did try to go with more of a liberal, sort of a liberal mindset for a while, but he, he couldn't stand hippies. He, he would just get so upset that these hippies, <laughs> when he would go... Why? Well, he, he had to like them because they were keeping him, you know, in business. <laughs> yeah. But there was, he just didn't... You know, he was he was basically for he's kind of a Nixon Republican. And and do you I mean, are some of your earliest memories just working in the bakery with your siblings? Yeah, some of the earlier, more standout memories were maybe going and visiting my dad where he was working because you had to be a certain age and certain size to be able to work in the bakery. Uh, you had to be able to get your hands up over the work table. And I was nine years old when I was when I was able to start working. Of course, I couldn't wait to start working. And what would you do at the bakery as a kid? Mainly, um, we had one of these cookie machines that had two rollers that would dispense cookies, and we were making natural cookies for these hippie places. And uh, we didn't work on Saturdays because we were Seventh Day Adventists. Right, that's the day of rest, right, in, in church. That's right. Yeah, but Sundays were wide open. It was often our biggest day of work. And, you know, the Adventists, that was their day of recreation, was Sunday. And so I was a little bit, I became more and more resentful at that young age that I wasn't able to go to these, to be a part of what my my peers were doing. But, uh, yeah, we worked, we worked our butts off on Sundays. And his bakery was not, like, hugely profitable, right? Like, you did not grow up with, with lots of money, right? No, we we worked for our little bit of money. Um, I remember starting at 25 cents an hour, and part of that money, part of that 25 cents went to paying for my school and clothes. Hmm. So when do you remember, like at what age do you remember starting to kind of rebel against, against your parents? It must have been about 11 or 12, probably 12 by the time I started looking at things as like, well, I don't believe this stuff. And I, you know, I read the Bible. I started, I was 
very sincere about it. Mm. I made a decision when I started having doubts that I would just read the Bible and hopefully God would tell me, you know, what I needed to know. And uh, it didn't work. <laughs> I mean, it just gave me more doubts. And so um, I started being more and more, you know, fighting with my dad and mom probably by the time I was 13, 14. And my mom was just really bummed out about it. She, could, she tried everything she could to try to help me, you know, to get back to the faith. And my dad was just mad. He was just angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like at that point it was probably sort of typical teenage rebellion. Um, were you doing drugs at that point or, or, or not? Not not yet. No, I drank a little. I, I, I think I was 14 when I first drank some beer and mm-hmm. smoked some weed. Eventually it got to be more and more of that. None of it really agreed with me. It didn't do me any, any favors. But at this point I was trying to find my way outside of the Adventist world. Mm-hmm. And... I was finding other misfits. Did you did you finish high school? No, I took off on a trip on the second day of my senior year. Took off uh, cross country, got stuck in Nebraska, and turned around, came back. What you just took? Um, a, you just like decided to just go on, uh, like on a bus or a, just by yourself? No, nah, hitchhiking. I I would, I always was like I always wanted to throw myself into situations and see what mm-hmm. happens. And so I was 17, and um, I took off on this trip, and I was about as naive as and, and green about life as you could get. And it started a sort of a lifelong thing of running away from things and going somewhere and having to run away from there, you know. Everywhere I went, I was running away, but, you know, there I was every time. Wow. I guess pretty soon after you kind of dropped out of high school and were trying to figure things out, you decided to to enlist in the Marines, right? Yeah. It was just one more one more um, grass is greener on the other side kind of an idea. And a friend of mine went into the Marines. He was another misfit like me, another, you know, we would call ourselves losers, I guess. And he, he went in the Marines, and it was just, he came back transformed. It's the first transformation I ever saw in my life. And I thought, well, you know, they can make a man out of me too, right? But I went in the Marines, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, I just got hell. I got hell from those drill instructors, and I I couldn't take it. I wasn't I wasn't built for it in those days. To to I didn't have a thick skin at all, and I eventually took off, <laughs> ran from there. So you head back to to Portland at, after that, and. What did you do? What do you remember about that time? It wasn't too long after that that I ended up getting married. It was just another crazy idea. And I met my my first daughter's mother, and we got married. And I was drinking, um, and at this point, I probably started doing the cocaine. I was just doing cocaine, but I wasn't at a level, a serious addiction level. It was just a recreational level. So you were 22, you had a kid, and you didn't really have much of a future, you know, many, like, prospects for the future, I guess, at that point. No, and that's, that's exactly it. I mean, at that time, I had no perspective on, you can go out and, and learn to become, to, to create a life for yourself, but 
I didn't know that. I didn't see that. And I just thought, well, I was born to lose. I don't know anything. Everybody else knows more than I do. Everybody else has is more um, built for life. And I, myself, I had such ADD. And even though nobody would have called it ADD, ADD in those days, and I didn't have anyone that could diagnose me like that, I couldn't focus on a conversation. Like what we're having right now, there's no way I could have done that. Wow. And uh, I couldn't listen to anything, and that's another problem I had in the Marine Corps. I, I couldn't listen, and I also was, I refused to wear glasses, and I was supposed to wear glasses. So I couldn't see the chalkboard. And I mean, I was just like, a lot of stuff was converging there, and a lot of bad stuff. And I was low self-esteem, depression, uh, and my, my thought was always, well, who wouldn't be depressed with a life like mine, you know? Yeah. That's a tough time in life for, for, for most people in general. I mean, your brain is changing. There's all kinds of things happening. You're sort of all of a sudden expected to be an adult. Here you are. You've got a child, um, what, what appears to be like a growing alcohol and drug addiction and undiagnosed depression <laughs> on top of that. Yeah, all those things. And then I would smoke weed. And then I would do acid, I'd do LSD, and almost always it was a terrible result because your mind, you can't go into a trip like that and have a, a mind that's all torn up. It just gets worse and it, it makes you nuts. Um, do you remember the first time you used meth? Yes, I do. It was the best. It was my first transformation in life. It was the first time that I saw that my life could be a lot better, at least in my thinking at the time. Wow. And, of course, we called it crank in those days. And um, I'd always been warned that crank was only for the, the lowest of the low. Hmm. But at that point, I was like, well, I am kind of the lowest of the low. Why don't I embrace it? And I did, and I, the very first time that I did the meth, put it in my arm. And I was instantly happy and ready to go and kick ass. And it made me just forget all the things that were, that were messing me up. And I, I kind of just left the world that I was in, this, this bummer world that I was in, and went to a world where I was happy. The problem would be when I would run out, and that happened a lot. Because uh, you didn't have money to, to get more, I guess, right. right? You didn't have a job. Yeah. At first... You know, I was working at the bakery. This, this is your family bakery? Yeah. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was be a baker. I didn't want to be what my dad was. I didn't want to be what any my family was. I didn't want to be this guy. I always thought being a baker was a sissy thing, you know. But I didn't know what else to do. Uh, eventually, it was unsustainable. And so I lost that job, and I started doing car burglaries, then eventually business and house burglaries. To? To pay for the dope. And you would steal things and, like, take them to pawn shops? Well, we had fences. Uh, I would work with guys who had a little bit more experience at this, and they would find ways to fence the things. And, you know, I, I would feel guilty at times when I was robbing someone and see the, the fear that they had. I would feel that guilt, and I, I remember actually saying I'm sorry to one person, um, but it didn't matter. I still had to do what I had to do. 
So this is around like 1986, 87, and this is going to sort of be the beginning of like 14 years, maybe more, maybe like 16 years. It comes up to just about 15 years in prison and jail. Hmm. Do you remember the first time you were incarcerated for burglary? Like, do you remember what, what, how you felt? Were you, were you scared? Were you? No, because by that time I, I had almost come, come to the conclusion that I was eventually going to go to prison, and that would be a good learning experience for me. And I didn't like prison. Don't get me wrong, I hated it. But I also looked at it as sort of a badge of, of who I was now. Were you, were you ever personally violent or angry? Did you have? Was that inside of you? Growing up, I was, I, there was a lot of anger in my family. That's one thing that was sort of, that came with the territory. The bakers, all the bakers in the family, we were all angry. That's Just I, angry with, with the world, with each other? With, I think so. With everything, yeah. I think, looking back now, I think my dad had similar problems that I had, you know, uh, to mine. He was uh, probably bipolar, like me. I saw him angry and I saw him depressed. I saw him angry and I saw him depressed. Hmm. So it sounds like during this period in, in prison, I mean, you were kind of dealing with a combination of of depression and anger and and addiction and just incredibly low self esteem. Very low. I was suicidal um, hmm. many many times in my life. I I had been suicidal when I put that needle in my arm. And so, you, you know, you got to understand that. I, did, I, I was back against the wall, nothing to lose when I did it. While you were, and I guess we should contextualize uh, this a bit, while you were in prison, I mean, the family bakery was still going on, right? Um, and your brother was involved with it. But, but while you were in prison, um, your dad passed away. Right, yeah. Were you, were you able to go to the funeral? Uh, no, because, uh, you know, I was confined. Were you, were you talking with your dad at that point, um, you know, around that time? I had started to want to talk to my dad, but I wasn't quite to the, the point that I got to later where I really wished that I could have had that, um, you know, that final, you know, some time with him. So you're, you're serving your final prison sentence. You were going to be you're going to be incarcerated for a long time. I guess around 2001, um, something happened to you that made you start to think about your life and and what you wanted to be. What what was it? What happened? Did you did you find God? Was it a religious experience? Like what what was it? It was like that. Um, my own form of God, I guess. And I experienced enough adversity and enough time where I couldn't run away. I was either going to take myself out, I was going to find a way, because I really had decided there's no reason why I should be alive. Mm -hmm. But being at the end of my rope like I was, I finally did something that they talk about in AA, and I surrendered. And I said, well, I'm going to let these authorities who may be able to help me, I'm going to give them a chance to help me. And it was a big deal because it's like you're telling on yourself in there, you know. The last thing you want to do is tell the authorities what's on your mind. And, but that was the wrong advice. The right advice was, yes, let down your guard and get some help. And uh, it wasn't long after that I got called in and, 
you know, I didn't tell him everything. I didn't say I was suicidal because I didn't want to get in more trouble. But he said, uh, well, look, we, we got this stuff called Paxil. You want to try it? And I said, hell yeah, let's give it a shot. And mm. it was, they say it takes quite a while to take effect, but mm. it was fairly quick with me. And I, sometimes I don't know how much of it was just the humility and the whole deal that it took to, to make that happen that changed yeah. my The sort of the placebo effect. Yeah, I think might have, it might have been pars- partially a placebo effect, but I think, it, I think the drug did help. It worked, and yeah. I had been on a waiting list for a computer-aided drafting program, which was a vocational training opportunity. Very rare, a very rare and great opportunity, I found out. At first, I was just scared to death of it. I was like, computers and, you know, drafting, I have no idea what they're talking about. But this time, I, I didn't give up, and I think a lot of the reason why I didn't give up is because of those meds and because I had... I had come to the point of, of acceptance of who I am, and I didn't care what other people thought of me, so yeah. so I had a great time. I, I just started, within a couple of weeks, I was having a blast in there, and that changed my life. So you're, you're in prison, you're taking this drafting, computer-aided drafting course and design course. You are on antidepressants. You'd spent most of the previous 15 years of your life in and out of prison, but it sounds like... You sort of woke up one day and you're like, I'm almost 40. My my perspective is changing. I'm not... I can't be a criminal anymore. Obviously, this is not working. I, I am not good at that. <laughs> That's one thing we can <laughs> definitely say. So December 27th, two days after Christmas in 2004, you are released. Um, the day you walked out of prison, your brother Glenn, he was there to pick you up, right? Yeah. And do you remember any of the conversation was... I don't know, was he, he's your older brother, right? I think he's like nine years older than you. Eight. Was he? Eight, eight years older, yeah. Was he, I don't know, did he scold you? Was he judgmental? Or was he just like, hey, oh, no. you're out? No. No, I think that he'd seen a difference in me, but he was still wary. But he had to see what was going on when I was doing the drafting and things and just the whole deal where I stopped blaming people. I <laughs> took accountability. Uh, didn't blame the system. The judge, I, it was all, look, I did this, and I can, I'm the one who's got the power to change it. So I think my brother was a little bit put off by my energy. It was a little bit yeah. too much. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I would be wary too, right, if if, yeah. if that was me. I mean, he, he had been sort of dutifully holding down the fort, holding down the fort running your parents' bakery and business and yeah he had managed to keep the business going various ways but you know he because he was a hard worker and smart and somehow they managed to become contract manufacturers of uh, for trader joe's which was really the bread Mm. and butter for the business before i got out so when he picked you up um after you released did he say all right listen you know, we got some work for you at the bakery, and uh, why don't you come and, and start working for us in a couple of days? Is that is that what he said? The way I remember it is that I asked him if I could come back, you know, because I'd been thinking about how I could make think I could make a difference in the company. And so he gave me that opportunity. I mean, I had to prove myself at the very low, the very lowest point, 12 bucks an hour. Just baking loaves of bread, basically? 
That was the, the priority was Brad. His uh, bigger thing was the marketing and how, how, can, how can we appeal to younger folks, you know. We were getting eaten up by the big guys who had figured out ways to sell bread that was more popular. Sure. I mean, Glenn, he, had, he, he could see where, he could see the writing on the wall. Like the big companies were coming in, undercutting, I mean, they were probably, their costs were far lower, and Nature Baked Bread wasn't selling. You had to, there was, you had to do something, right, to, in, order, in yeah. order for this business to grow. And he sort of kind of tasked you to kind of look around. Yeah. Figure this out. The one thing, I think the, the coolest thing that my brother did was to kind of just let me do my thing. He, he said, well, you know, learn, learn what's out there and stuff. And because of my experimenting with, uh, as a drafter, that's what you do. You, you replicate and then you make it better, right? Yeah, sure. And that's what I did. I would replicate other varieties of other kinds of bread that were that were popular out in the market. Like you were just experimenting in, in the bakery and just trying different flours out and grains. Yeah. Well, I had always wanted to make a bread with great texture, and you know one of the things I love is natural whole grain cereal that's not beat up too much. It's got to have some good chewiness to it, and uh, it doesn't matter. It could be wheat, oats, whatever. So. I made a soaker where you take the cracked grains and you, you make them soft enough to make bread out of them, but not too soft. So it was texture that I was aiming for. Plus, I was going for sort of a brown sugary flavor without mm. brown sugar. So I, I used organic cane juice and uh, molasses for that flavor. Mm. And I wanted it to be like a masterpiece of art, too. And mm. I didn't call it killer bread right away. I called it blues bread, the first one. And it was... It had a beautiful blue color to it, like I was aiming for. How did you How did you get that blue color? It was just blue cornmeal. Uh, oh, you, you you sort of had blue cornmeal around the, like you rolled the yeah. the bread the dough into the inside cornmeal. and out. Mm-hmm. And uh, every bread that I made, pretty much, I named first, and then I created it. Hmm. So I remember thinking, I want to make a, a loaf of blues bread. One of my one of my varieties is going to be called blues because I love the blues. <laughs> and I thought, well, I can <laughs> yeah. make a blue bread. Yeah. And then I, I liked, then I was like, well, the other one was always killer bread. I always wanted to make a variety called killer bread. Yeah. And the biggest difference in it was that it was made with nuts and seeds rather than just seeds and grains. When you were experimenting with the different kinds of breads and the what would become Dave's killer bread, like... I don't know. Do you remember taking that first loaf out? Do you remember? Do you remember knowing yes. that, that? What do you remember about that? Oh man, it was great. Uh, I'll never forget it. It's it. It had a great fullness to it, a great you know beauty to the shape, and the blue cornmeal was you know just made it like no other bread before it. It was it was beautiful, and I took it out of the oven. I was five loaves, and tasted it pretty quickly and I was like oh god this is good I mean it fits my flavor profile uh, you know what I want and then I gave a loaf to our maintenance guy um, and I think we had like 25 30 employees at the time but the maintenance guy he took one home and he came back the next day and he just couldn't stop raving about it hmm. and I eventually got you know more people to more people were starting to say hey Dave that was that's a good bread really yeah. good bread can, can I ask you a technical question because obviously right like as uh, I've made bread and I you know I've baked things before and uh, 
And and pretty much like anything you take out of the oven and eat right away, like whether it's a chocolate chip cookie or a, a yeah. piece of bread, is amazing. Be good. The the, yeah. the test the test is whether it's still good four hours later, right? So like I can imagine your bread was amazing, but like this had to be bread that could sit on a shelf of a supermarket or a grocery store. So had it like was it still great? Like I don't know five hours later or the next day? Definitely. In fact, I hardly ever would eat it hot because that's mm-hmm. really not not a good test for, of how good it is. Um, and, uh, you know, the process of of how it's done and rotated and everything, you know, it's got to be it's got to be good for five days on the shelf there and it's got to be good for a few days once they get it. Yeah. They don't, people really didn't expect it to be, to last forever because um, it's natural and doesn't have chemicals in it. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, uh, that was my slogan, just say no to bread on drugs. And in those days, <laughs> yeah. in those days, that was a pretty popular slogan. All right, so you make that loaf. Your maintenance guy comes back the next day. You know that you're onto something. And then did you, did you go to Glenn, your brother, and say, hey, try this out. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I wanted him to love it, you know, but it wasn't his idea of a of killer bro- of a great bread. What I give him so much credit for is that even though he didn't really like my bread, he understood that it wasn't his taste buds that mattered. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I totally give him props for that. He wasn't controlling. Like most companies would say, you know, hey, we got to keep this in this price. You can't go beyond this. And fortunately, he did not say that. I remember when we got to the point of realizing we did a cost analysis on it and we started realizing how much we were going to have to sell this for. And it was a more difficult bread to make than, than the average loaf of bread. How much did you have to sell it for? Well, we went to the farmer's market and we sold it at four dollars, and the nuts and grains was four fifty because the nuts were more expensive. Yeah, four 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 fifty in in two thousand one. That's uh, that's pretty expensive. Yeah, I think everybody was worried about the price, mm-hmm. and they also they didn't like the bread. I mean, in the, in the upper the, the upper management of the company. Yeah, which was a pretty small company, but the people who had been around for a while. There was sort of a, hey, this is the way bread is, and this is not bread. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so what we did is, it was actually an opportunity. This was actually a project that my nephew and I, this was our opportunity to build equity in the company. Uh, ah. And that was really what my brother said. He, was, he would always own uh, 51%, but he was going to give us an opportunity to buy into the company. And in order to buy in, we had to produce sales. We had to increase revenues. So you essentially spun off. You sort of created a separate company to sell Dave's separate killer brand. Bread. Separate brand. Okay. It was actually a separate brand, but it was a whole different operation. Mm-hmm. And my nephew and myself, we ran the we ran the operation. This is Glenn's son, Shobi. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Shobi was like a prodigy kid, you know, really mm-hmm. smart kid. He graduated in three years, magna cum laude, laude well, I don't know how you can say that, <laughs> from uh, Willamette University, which is a prestigious, good university um, in, in economics of all things. So he gets out, he's 21, he's 21 years old. He gets, the same year I got out of prison, he gets out of college. Wow. And he had a whole different way of looking at things. 
and he really didn't like me being around, but uh, we were partners, and we managed to to find ways to work together, and we had our own duties that we would, we would do for the most part, and that kind of kept us out of each other's way. I mean, you were the guy who came up with the actual product. You came up with Dave's Killer Bread, but let's let's just sort of reflect on this for a moment. I mean, it's probably unlikely that you know Dave's Killer Bread would would have become a brand at this point without your brother and his son's business acumen probably probably I would right? say it, I would say it's impossible for it to right? happen without yeah, right. without first right. of all my dad starting what he did even yeah. though my dad was basically a knucklehead like me <laughs> and worked his butt off but he didn't really you know he wasn't really a businessman per se he wasn't like that was his focus he was a creator and he was a hard worker and that's what i see myself as my brother and my nephew had more definitely had more of the they were looking at the finances and all that stuff more and i was always passion driven and so yeah. there there was a lot of disagreements on how things should be done but honestly there were many times that because it, it felt so bad the way we the way we got on that it almost derailed and what was so what was so hard about it? I mean I mean obviously we're only hearing you know your side of the story but right I and mean that's why here, I wanna... but but what was was it just a personality clash like definitely there was definitely the attitude that wow this guy comes out here and he's kind of a, a wrecking ball mm. you know he comes out here just like he's like a cowboy shooting from the hip and you yeah. know half the stuff he does fails and you know he's just uh he was crazy <laughs> and, <laughs> was it like that though but dave was it like that from the because you guys founded this brand in 2005 right and no one knew what dave's killer bread was in 2005 no one was really going to no. know what it was for several more years well it didn't but take very it, long for attention to get attention but, but was there tension between you and your brother and your nephew from the beginning like even like right Big from time. the beginning really very wow. very right from the beginning oh my god and the way I always saw it was people loved my story. They loved what I had gone through and how I'd overcome it. Hmm. But my family was too close to it or something and didn't see it that hmm. way. And they saw it as more like, well, he, he doesn't deserve this. <laughs> but I, I went out and I had a lot of love from the, from the people in the community. Uh, you, would talk about, of, you would talk about your story and you would say, and look what I'm doing now. Yeah, it was in the... I actually wrote my story, put it on the back of the bag. It was like a few paragraphs. I've got it in front of me. It starts... Um, I was a four-time loser before I realized I was in the wrong game. Fifteen years in prison was a pretty tough way to find oneself, but I have no regrets. And then it went on to describe the spread. You Diversity. Know, they, you're trying to make the world a better place, one loaf of bread at a time. That must have been incredibly powerful for people to see that on the packaging. And this is when you're still just selling at farmer's markets, right? Yeah, and I would sit there, I would stand there at the farmer's market, pass a loaf of bread to, to this doctor, this attorney, this, you know, professional person, and people I never would have met, you know, and I started meeting these great people, and they loved the idea, and they loved the bread. Pretty pr pretty soon after you launched, did you did you put the sort of cartoon, like the caricature of you on the, on the, on the wrapper? Yeah, you know how that came about was my, mm. we, my, my brother, my nephew, and myself, sitting with the uh, copyright attorney, Mike, uh, Mike Heilbronner. Um, he said, you know, this bread's great. You know, you got a good, I think the name's great. You know, what you're missing is a logo. Mm. 
And my brother had been suggesting that we have a picture of me on the back with my guitar, uh, with my story. And I, I thought that was a good idea. But when I heard this guy talking about this, I said, I started sketching. And I ended up sketching. The idea I had was this guy who represents me with his guitar and Dave's bread in big block letters. All this is painted on the wall, on a brick mm. wall in, a, in an alley. Now, somebody comes along with their uh, red spray paint can and tags killer over that. And that doesn't ever show up. That Nobody ever gets that from looking at the, um, uh-huh. the, the what we ended up with. But that was the original idea. Oh, uh, yeah. I see that. The killer. <laughs> now I see that. That's the graffiti on the... Yeah, I got you. Okay. But making that in a logo is really hard. By the way, I read... And, and, and please, be honest with me. Just let's level with me. I read that you that's asked the... That's the only way car- I know how to be. I, asked, I read that you asked the cartoonist to make your biceps bigger in that cartoon. Yep. I said, you look, did. I'm paying you 150 bucks, dude. <laughs> and he did. He uh, did make him bigger. And then, then I said, bigger. <laughs> yeah, because they're they're definitely a little um, a little exaggerated. Yes. And they like the idea of calling it Dave's Killer Bread. They, you know, it's an interesting thing. We went to a marketing firm to tell this story, this ex-con, this Killer Bread, and they're like, no, no, that's too risky and all this stuff and I, it, I can't remember the dynamics of all the situation but I did get kicked out of the marketing meetings and I was very you know not very happy about that but eventually I know that my brother and my nephew came around to the idea that the killer bread idea and the ex-con thing was, was going to be acceptable you know this marketing firm was full of crap when we come back how Dave and his family take their killer bread from the farmer's market to the supermarket, and then later, why Dave was banned, physically banned, from walking into the very company he helped start. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.com slash improvinglives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair chance hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at C-H-E-C-K-R dot com slash N-P-R. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So in 2005, Dave's Killer Bread is getting more popular. The loaves are selling, there's media attention, and people love the story of Dave Dahl, the ex-con who turned his life around with bread. But up to this point... He's just been selling the loaves at the farmer's market, and that's just a seasonal thing. As the market was coming to a close around November-ish, 
people were like, well, how are you going to, how are we going to have this bread, you know, afterwards? And he was like, well, I thought you never ask. Uh, Tell your local stores, tell the stores you buy it, tell them you want the bread there. And they did. And they started, and we got into one small co-op and we got into one vegan grocery. And then in a couple more months, we got into New Seasons, which was like the first big big break but it was boy it was a lot of work it was a lot of work doing all those demos oh my god i think um so so you launched this with your brother and your nephew you've it's got about 30 employees obviously you're sort of a side project of nature bake right at that time yes Mm -hmm. at that time it may not have felt fast but like when you look back on it like within i think five years you have 190 employees working for you what what was the turning point do you remember when when it just started to just blow up we we were at a small location we had a 15,000 square foot facility that was making nature bake when i got out of prison and within a very short time we outgrew that and we had to find time on the floor to we had we had to share our our time with nature bake production and we had entirely different crews and mm. they were actually kind of at each other's throats kind of like my brother right. and my nephew and myself. <laughs> right and uh we moved out of there i don't know how many employees we probably had 100 employees or so i mean i don't think we even had 100 at the time probably 50 when we moved out of there uh to bob's red mills old facility mm. uh, we've known bob forever and that, we go back a long ways we but, know bob he's been on the show yeah, I know. I, yeah, I heard, more, yeah. I heard yeah. the whole episode, and I enjoyed it. And Bob is great. He's a wonderful guy. In fact, my dad was Bob's first uh, whole wheat flour uh, wholesale customer. Wow. So you guys move into you move into an old Bob's Red Mill facility to expand production of, of Dave's Killer Bread? Yeah, and the biggest challenge we had at this point, and I, this was like 2007, 8, I can't remember for sure. My brother needed to get... I didn't have any credit. I didn't have anything. Sure. So, my, and you know, Shobi was young and didn't really have anything established. So Glenn had to go to the bank, put up his house, and couldn't get our regular bank. You know, one of the biggest banks in the country wouldn't take a chance on us. Yeah. So we had to get a local bank who was willing to, you know, take that chance at a fairly high high interest rate. Um, it cost us a million and a half to move to this new facility. And a million and a half to us then was a lot of money. Sure. And there was no cash flow to support that. It was all based on the future. So he put up, he basically had to take out a second mortgage or a line of credit against his house to fuel the the bit, right, to get some capital to fund the business. Yeah, and his house wasn't enough to to completely collateralize uh, that. They had to take a chance on, on everything. I mean, but they would have owned everything if yeah. we hadn't made it. So how are you able to to get any equity in the company if you had no no cash? Like, how are you able to get any ownership over this? Eventually, my brother sold it to us for our percentage of the valuation of the business at the time that we started our project. Right. And instead of owning a certain, a larger percentage of Dave's Killer Bread, I settled on a smaller percentage of the entire company. Of Nature Bake. Yes. And I'm very glad I did. So, and so how did you guys continue to, to expand, like, into, like, bigger chains, like Costco? Like, how, how did you do that? Well, Costco, I would get these letters. This, I got this email from somebody at Costco, a buyer, saying, our customers are asking for your bread. 
and we would like you, you know, to come up and present to us. Well, we were still at the old facility with 15,000 square feet and absolutely no way we were going to be able to handle Costco then. But the fact that we had Costco coming was a big factor in how we got that loan. Sure. Still, actually executing the idea was a whole other matter. It took us a long time to finally reach a deal and finally have the ability to produce enough bread to meet Costco demand. And we just kept working and working and working and promoting and were able to secure uh, partners in Coman, co-manufacturing. Essentially other other facilities that would bake your recipe to your specifications because you couldn't possibly have done that all on your own for Costco, right? Just the scale was going to be no. impossible. No, and I'll tell you what, man. Uh, when you have a culture of a product, trying to get another culture to adopt it is a whole is a whole other challenge. And yeah. to create that product and to, to have consistent quality was a real was a real bear. Um, I would go and see the operation, surprise them. And uh, I was very unpleasantly surprised myself sometimes until we were able to get it right. But hmm. people, people will cut corners when they get a chance. And so we did worked our asses off to make sure that that didn't happen. So the Costco, I mean, the Costco deal, clearly transformational because you had to scale up fast. You had to increase the number of employees and it was going to create a huge revenue stream, a huge windfall. Um, at a certain point, about a third of your workforce, so now you're getting close to 300 people, were ex-cons. Like, was that was that a was it a deliberate thing? Like, did you think let's start hiring other ex-convicts to work to work it? Because it's really hard to get a job when you've got a record when you when you're an yeah. ex-con. It was especially then. It's, it's gotten a little better now. You know, I had a certain mentality about that that came from my own experience of having transformed my life. I was like, you know, this is something, this is a real thing. People do change, and when they're ready, how great would it be to give them that opportunity, and then we get an amazing ploy. So it just made sense to hire some of them, but that wasn't something we were aiming for. But, huh. you know, once they, once once the, the temporary services, and that's how we... We recruited right. our people generally. Sure. Once they found out that we were felon friendly, it was funny. That's all they sent us. That's all they sent you. <laughs> we were hiring so fast that you know we ended up hiring a lot more felons, and uh, it just worked out. I think around like what's incredible is that I think it was like 2011, 2012. You guys are doing like 40, 50 million dollars in sales, which, which is phenomenal. And I guess, and I guess, around that time, you you get an offer from uh, from like a private equity company to to buy in, and then they I think they bought out like half the company in in 2012. Exactly half, yes. But I think around this time, like the 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 relationship between you and your brother and your nephew was so bad that at times you guys were literally emailing each other in the same office, which from just from an outside perspective, it just seems so sad. Like I'm, you know, I think people would say, but guys, you're. You're so successful, like this bread is doing so great. You're you're hiring ex-convicts. Like, are you seriously not getting along? Like, it just seems so weird. But then, of course, family dynamics are complicated. They are. Um, yeah, I don't even know how to explain it. I, 
But what we did have, and you know, the this, this wisest thing we ever did, and I think this was credit to my brother, that we got someone that could advise us. This guy was actually a family business advisor, but mainly mainly for succession plans and things like that. Right. Uh, but he said, you guys need a vision and a mission. You guys have it, but you don't all agree on what it is. And he was right. And once we got those established, and they were pretty simple, like one of them, like the vision was to make the world a better place one loaf of bread at a time. So I was gratified that they agreed to that. And so we were able to solve some of our problems and get along and, and be in the same room that way. So you, I mean, pretty quickly, and I guess by this point, 2012, you, you became famous. Like you are the, this caricature on the bread. People want to know your story. You're doing media. You're speaking. How did you feel about that? Did you, did you love that attention? I did because it was for a good reason. I felt I always felt like I was doing good work, you know, like there was a purpose. And for the first time in my life, I had this purpose. It was just unbelievable what was happening and the love I was getting. And I really couldn't keep up with the demand for speaking. Hmm. Uh, but I never had a prepared speech, you know. I was you just, just go speaking out there like this. Tell your story. Yeah. <laughs> So as you um as your profile was growing um do you think that it had an I mean it must have had an impact on your own ego right this is natural like it would yeah. it's normal like the more attention you get the more people hanging out the more people telling you're amazing yeah. the more people saying you're yeah. awesome you're great oh dave this it, like it probably yes. did inflate your ego right and i tried you know the thing that helped me so much with my transformation in life the two things were acceptance and humility yeah. And so when this was happening, I was always telling myself, look, you know, I'm very fortunate. I'm blessed. I'm grateful for this. I was always trying to tell myself that. And unfortunately, you know, I took my first vacation a few years into this, mm-hmm. went to Mexico, and I discovered tequila. And uh, it took me years for it to happen, to, to graduate to a level where I was really an alcohol, full-blown alcoholic. But you were drinking um, all all, the, all along, white, even after you got out of prison in in '04. Yeah, like, and you, a beer you, or two here and there. Yeah, right. other people would get wasted. But drug, I, but not I, drugs. You were done with drugs. No, but it wasn't until things got a little easier. It got easier, and I had more employees doing my work, and eventually it was easier to drink and just be a drinker. And uh, if, well, look, I'm successful. I'm kind of a rock star. See, there you go. There's that bad creeping mentality mm. right mm. there. And so I can afford to do this. And I even would call myself the Aussie of bread, you know. I'd go speak to a group of kids or like a, a high school or whatever. And then right afterwards, I'd celebrate by drinking a half, you know, half a fifth of, uh, of tequila. And then I'd drink another half later, you know, and, and then eventually it was a half gallon. 2013, um, I think safe to say, was a pretty rough year for you. And I want to talk about two things that happened that year. Um, There was a moment that year where you were outside of of a store of Dave's Killer Bread of a facility in Portland and maybe you were were drunk or you were having kind of a manic episode. I hadn't drank for uh, several weeks at that point. I'd been... uh, I showed up that day. I had decided that day that I was going to 
go against the new CEO's mandate that I was not supposed to be on the property. Now, I was very resentful about this. They and didn't want you on the property because they felt you were disruptive at that point? Yeah, they, they just... Well, one of the things that happened was before this, I had gone up to my cabin. I, I had this cabin on Mount Hood, and... I had taken some guys with me, and one of the people, one of the guys I took with me, I shouldn't have. Um, he's an old buddy that was, uh, that we were dope buddies way back in the day. And we're up at the cabin. Long story short, he leaves. He's, he, he left in your car, right? In my car. And I let him. You know, it wasn't like he stole it. I was, sure. I was too drunk to even use my, use my head. And uh, this guy ends up, uh, they find him in a ditch 40-some-odd days later uh, decomposing. It's a really ugly thing. And yeah. the company, first of all, said, well, you need to get an attorney. And things started spinning out of control. Well, they must um, have been worried because for, for a number of reasons. First of all, you're implicated, whether, you know, not directly but indirectly in this guy's death. And and you are the brand. You are Dave. You are Dave's getting yeah. the brand. And, and there, there it was is horrible. This, yeah. And honestly, you know, when that guy died, I was heartbroken too, you know. Yeah. And finally on November 14, I believe it was, I had been not drinking for six to eight weeks. I can't, I don't know for sure. I was getting more and more resentful and there was there was becoming a clash between me and the company and here's this company that I worked so hard to build a brand so I'm feeling this loss I'm losing my company mm-hmm. losing my bread my my baby and one thing's leading to another and finally that day I showed up at bread quarters we call it and uh, I'm not quite you know level you know in my mind I see this cardboard cut out of myself and without actually forming the thought in my mind, what I was thinking, what I was feeling was like, this guy, this cardboard cut out of me can be here in this, in this storefront and I can't. And so I punched it. (laughs) I never liked it anyway. So I punched it and it didn't make any sense. None of it makes any sense. Mm -hmm. But at the time I realized that's, you know, it was just resentment and anger. And um, the day just got worse from there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it got a lot worse. Like, like you ended up, I think later that night, uh, you ended up ramming your, your SUV into two cop cars. Yeah. And, and you were arrested. I went to jail for like 36 hours, and I was seeing all this stuff about me on TV. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, I was freaky. Um, but my attorney tells me, look, dude, you have to check in to Cedar Hills Hospital, mental hospital, um, because you're not quite right. So eventually, I did follow his advice. I went there and checked in and stayed there for like two and a half weeks, and it was a good move. So this is now the beginning of the the next episode of your rebirth, because you'd already had that rebirth in 2001 in prison that... And you kind of had this amazing run of success, and then you crashed really hard. Yeah. You know, after that two and a half weeks in the hospital, where I, in which I was very hypomanic and just like a laughing, joking knucklehead, 
um, I was back in my home, I hit the bottom. I hit the biggest, the, the most painful bottom I had ever hit. And it was mm -hmm. after I read this story about myself in the Willamette Week called Breaking Bread, which was I Breaking read, Bad. Yeah. Sure, I read yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, I... I read that, I thought, well, that's funny, Breaking Bread, and it's with the Breaking Bad logo, mm -hmm. and I go, that's, that's cool, and I was still in a good frame of mind, and then, I, or I wouldn't say good frame of mind, but happy, until I read that article, and it was the worst thing I'd ever seen about myself, mm -hmm. and I, it just hit me that, wow, I have, I be, I'm, I'm a big problem, I, I'm either something really good, or I'm something really bad, and I'm really bad. And look what I've done. I've let down all these people, all these employees, all these uh, investors, all these you know people who believed in me. And I just couldn't live with that. It just hit me so hard. And uh, it took me a while to come out of that depression. I mean, it really speaks to this idea that, because at this point, you had a lot, you, you already had some money. Like, you, you were clearly going to, become a wealthy man um and i it, was already it, wealthy man at this point i mean we yeah. sold the first half of the business i mean it speaks to this idea that money doesn't solve everything and oftentimes can can exacerbate things right it, it, it's like because from the outside somebody might say dave your life is set like how you're could set. you do that how could yeah, you screw right. that up yeah right and you're saying but you can't understand because i can't even understand like you couldn't probably couldn't right. even explain to yourself what was going on no it's it's a it's an it's, it's a unique and over the moon set of circumstances yeah um but money has nothing to do with happiness uh hmm. You know, it never has. I knew that from the beginning because I was so happy without ever making any money. Um, I am used to having money now, so I would hate to be without it. But really, things are good because I'm good, you know, in my space. At that point, after you hit, sort of hit that low, did you decide to to do Alcoholics Anonymous? That you had to, that you really had to do well, something? I, I didn't really have a choice. I, I, I've liked Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the 12 steps are just great. Very meaningful to me. I'm kind of, I would probably go anyway at this point, but um, it's something I have to do. Is it a struggle for you every day to avoid alcohol? It has been at times, but not for quite a while. One of the things that I have as an insurance policy, and I, I believe it helps, is um, Vivitrol. That's the brand name of this thing that's kind of a modern antibuse. You take a shot, I take a shot every month. What, what is it? It's a medication that, that sort of blocks, inhibits your desire yeah, to drink? Yeah, you wouldn't, you're not supposed to enjoy, you wouldn't really enjoy yourself on it if you did it. So, you know, why, why screw around with it when it's not even going to be a good experience? And mm. so um, that's a very good deterrent. So you are... Right now, you know, at this point in your life, in recovery still and really working at it, the company sold, entirely sold. So Dave's Killer Bread, no longer owned by the family. I think it sold for almost $300 million. Um, and you... 275, yeah. Wow. Um, your nephew, Shobi, went on to do other ventures and he's involved in investing. You've got uh, an art gallery in Portland. Um, what's your relationship like with, with your brother Glenn and, and your nephew Shobi these days? Well, it's, uh, 
It's in limbo, I guess. I haven't. I would like to think that someday we will be more family than just like former business partners, but it, it's not. It, we just don't talk. Sometimes we have um, family gatherings that have nothing to do with, that are not put on by any of us, and we might meet meet up there. But what I want to do, <laughs> this is weird. I'm telling you this instead of them, but I I just want something real real to happen. You know, I don't want. I don't want to force anything, and I just hope I just hope to have at, at the end of this, before we all die, you know,、uh, especially my brother and myself, you know, that we're going to find something, some peace, you know. I mean, when you think about when you think about your story, it's an amazing story—the ups and the downs, and the and all that you've been through, which I think a lot of people can identify with, because this is not a seamless. This is not a simple story of going from one success to another success. Like you've had, you've had a lot of ups and downs, and you, and you're open about it and you're honest about it.、Um, so first of all, thank you for that. I've realized the power of that. It's, it, I, I realized it really early on that look, people cared about the story, and they, if it wouldn't have been for the bread, the story probably wouldn't have mattered that much. But anyway, it feels good to talk about it. How much of what happened to you? I mean, the success of the company,、um, the, the good sides of what happened. Do you think、um, are because of your hard work and your intelligence and your skill? And how much of it do you think is is because of luck and and the luck that you know, Shoby and Glenn were there to, you know, to sort of see a, in that product a potential something that would potentially be be big. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of bad luck before it was good luck, and when it comes to being a millionaire and becoming a very successful businessman, that is not something that would have happened probably without, you know, having those associations. But who knows where it would have gone? See, because the most the miracle of all this was the transformation I had in prison. That was what mattered because my mind was free. I felt free, and.、Mm-hmm. I, having a contrast between the adversity that I'd had in my life and what I was going through, and I mean, just being able to create and just keep working towards something, you know, that was that was the miracle to me. That's Dave Dahl, co-founder of Dave's Killer Bread. By the way, the cartoon version of Dave is still on every package of the bread. Biceps as big as ever. Dave no longer has the mustache that's on the package, but he still does play his guitar. His band's name: Dave Dahl and the Killer Granddaddies, and here they are. Please do stick around because in just a moment we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build an online presence and run your business. Go to squarespace.com/npr for a free trial. Then use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. What if video games could help you and your child bond and learn important skills? 
NPR's Life Kit for Parenting is taking on screen time. One of the big things we're working on right now is the concept of resiliency and not quitting when something is hard. Sometimes we lose and lose and lose. And games are great with that. Check out Life Kit's new guide on screen time or subscribe to Life Kit All Guides for all of our episodes, all in one place. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today's story starts with a recipe. Black pepper essential oil, umke lobo tea, sea buckthorn tea, Greek mountain This is tea, Erica Foyt. She lives in Livermore, Colorado with her husband, Jason. Sea salt, cloves, peppercorn, arrowroot, elderflower. And all of these ingredients, they all go into a natural deodorant that Jason and Erica make and sell. It's called pit liquor. Emphasis on the liquor. Vodka. Whiskey. Vodka and whiskey are, in fact, the key ingredients in pit liquor deodorant. Because, like most spirits, they can actually kill the bacteria that make us smell bad. But beyond that, whiskey has tannins in it, which are antibacterial in and of themselves. And then it's something that's fun. Anyway, all of this came about a few years ago when Erica was pregnant, and she was looking for a natural deodorant that would work without making her break out. And so Jason decided to see if he could make some, even though he had absolutely no experience in deodorant. Like, his day job was in IT. I actually spent a lot of time reading textbooks on deodorant and on armpits. Old textbooks? Yes, there are. There are actually textbooks on armpits. (laughs) So all throughout 2016, Jason was trying to find the perfect blend to fight B.O., mixing vodka and whiskey and essential oils and black tea, and then storing these concoctions in mason jars around the house. And he tested all of them out on Erica. He stopped showering his armpits. He stopped washing them. And he would come to me and say, I sprayed St. John's wort and vodka on this armpit, and I have juniper berries and this weird tea from China on this other armpit. And I want you to smell them and tell me which smells better. And can I just say here that on this show, we've talked to a lot of founders who are also married couples, but this, this is like a whole new level of collaboration. If you've ever stuck your nose in an armpit, you don't have good expectations. And I finally got sick of smelling and said, look, I think you have a winner. Please stop. I'm done. I'm tired. (laughs) And it turns out Jason really did have a winner, a mix of tea and vodka and whiskey and essential oils that worked really well for him and Erica. But what about everybody else? So we reached out to our friends on Facebook and said, hey, anyone want to try a natural deodorant that we've formulated? And their friends signed up. They tried it, they liked it, word started to spread, and Erica and Jason kicked it into high gear. They raised a little bit of money and they started to ramp up production of the deodorant. But then customers began to complain about something the couple had not anticipated. They were really angry with these white spray caps that we had. Like people were telling us that when they sprayed the cap, the alcohol was just spewing up around their finger in like a fountain. It looked like Old Faithful. So Erica and Jason tried different caps, but they kept clogging or breaking. It basically leads us to a place where we're sending out free caps and free bottles of deodorant, new bottles, and we just, we basically just hemorrhaged money. After a frantic search, 
Erica and Jason eventually found a cap that was sturdy enough to deliver the deodorant. But the bottle cap crisis almost sank the company. It seems like it's almost like falling down Alice's uh, rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland because it's just so incredibly deep and there's so much to do. It's scary, it's terrifying, but the bottom line is it's a blast. Pit Liquor is now averaging about $20,000 a month in sales, and the company hopes to be profitable by this summer. And by the way, some of the folks on our team have actually sampled the deodorant, and they say it works and smells pretty great, kind of like a very clean neighborhood bar. But to be clear, it is not drinkable. So don't drink it. For the same reason nobody drinks their hand sanitizer, nobody should drink nobody should drink their deodorant. That's Jason Foyt and his wife Erica. They're the co-founders of Pit Liquor Deodorant. If you want to find out more about the company or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. Our show is produced this week by James Delahousie with original music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Our editor is Neva Grant. Thanks also to Julia Carney, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is David Ja. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. We live in a world, a country, and a moment in time where there's so much important news, and it is constantly changing. That's why Up First is here for you. It's NPR's daily morning news podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.